Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series. I am Amy Zellmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. Today, I will be chatting with Abby Maslin, a spouse's perspective after brain injury. This episode is brought to you by Midwest Functional Neurology Center, a Minneapolis-based clinic staffed by a caring and progressive team of functional neurologists who are experienced in treating post-concussion syndrome, chronic pain, dizziness, whiplash, and migraines. They are the concussion doctors you can trust for comprehensive brain health in the Midwest. They've greatly helped me and many others, and you can find them online, mnfunctionalneurology.com. Hello, everyone. I am Amy Zellmer, and you're listening to Faces of TBI, a podcast series for survivors by survivors, raising awareness about traumatic brain injury, one podcast at a time. Those of you who might not know who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February 2014. I'm a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, and the Good Men Project, and I volunteer on the Brain Injury Association of America's Advisory Council, and I recently released my second book, Embracing the Journey, Moving Forward After Brain Injury. You can learn more about me and the podcast at facesoftbi.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zellmer. Today, my guest is Abby Maslin, and Abby shares an inspiring story of resilience and commitment in a deeply affecting new memoir. After her husband suffered a traumatic brain injury, the couple worked together as he recovered and they learned to love again. Love You Hard is the raw, unflinchingly honest story of a young love left broken and the resilience required to mend a life and remake a marriage. Told from the caregiver's perspective, this book is a daring exploration of true love, what it means to love beyond language, beyond abilities, and into the place that reveals who we really are. At the heart of Abby and TC's unique and captivating story are the universal truths that bind us all. This is a tale of living and loving wholeheartedly, learning to heal after profound grief, and choosing joy in the wake of tragedy. So welcome to the podcast, Abby. I am so excited to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. This is such an honor. I'm just so excited. I um, Oh, gosh, what month was it? I lose track of time with all my traveling. I think it was February um, when you spoke at the Virginia Brain Injury Conference. So I got to yeah, hear your right keynote. Right at the beginning of March. Yeah. It was yeah. March. There yeah. you go. <laughs> well, and it's so funny because I had read lots of your writing and we've never met. So that was such a thrill for me. Yes, ditto. Yes. It's, um, it's funny how the community is huge, but yet small. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is a great way of saying it. Yeah, you do a lot of writing on brainline.org. And um, anybody who's listening, um, that is a fabulous resource. They put out um, tons of articles every day on their Facebook page and their website. So brainline.org is a really fabulous resource for anyone going through brain injury and their families. Yeah, I have to say it was the resource that saved me at the beginning of this journey when I was going on 
long Google searches and kind of coming up empty handed um, as I looked for information that would be, you know, just useful in real life and not so much of the medical perspective. Brainline mm-hmm. was incredible and continues to be. So it's just, it's a wonderful resource for all of us. So Abby, why don't we start with you just kind of giving us, um, you know, the cliff notes version of, of what happened? Um, your your husband TC suffered a very severe traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't we start there? Sure. So I woke up on the morning of August eighteenth, two thousand twelve, and uh, my husband wasn't there. He wasn't in bed beside me. Um, he had gone to a Nationals baseball game the night before, and he had never come home. Um, and it would take a while before I figured out what happened. Um, but what did happen is that he had been robbed and assaulted on his way walking home. So only a few blocks from our house. Um, one thing that was, you know, made his injury so significant was the fact that he was assaulted at about midnight. He wasn't found until 8 a.m. the next morning. So, Um, He had sustained a a long period of brain bleeding. By that point, he had been um, hit on the head with a baseball bat. So that was the that was the beginning of my journey with brain injury, which is a term that I, you know, I'm sure I had heard at different points in my life, but never heard it, really heard it until that day sitting in a very small waiting room with a neurosurgeon who had just performed a craniectomy to remove part of TC's skull. Um, TC's prognosis was really uncertain. Um, like I said, he'd been bleeding for so long, it wasn't clear that he was even going to survive. Um, so we went into just kind of wait and see mode, um, for days and then weeks. Um, and as doctors became more confident that he was going to live, um, what I got was just this incredibly huge range of possibilities for what life might be like. Um, so the possibility that he might not have the same personality, that he might not remember me and our son, who was 21 months old at the time, um, that he might be aggressive, um, that he was unlikely to walk again and unlikely to speak again. Um, he had been hit on the left side of his head. So I had been told that his language centers were going to be severely impaired. Um, and likewise, he had, he had sustained damage to the optic nerve, so he might be blind in one eye. So there was just this huge range of possibilities that was way too large to even try to process at one time on top of this added layer of it um, being an injury as a result of a violent act, which was another, you know, just layer to process and and try to make sense of. Yeah. You know, you mentioned you'd never really heard the word traumatic brain injury. And I, I remember that, you know, and I actually didn't, hear the word I was just told I had a severe concussion and it wasn't until Mm. a few weeks went by that another doctor told me I had a traumatic brain injury and I was like huh (laughs) you know and and like yeah we've we've probably heard the term but never really paid attention and um, I think that's why the work that all of us are doing is so important is I mean it really can happen to anyone at any time. And, yeah. you know, unfortunately, TC's is a very violent and aggressive act. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it can happen. I fell on the ice, 
you know? I mean, it's just, I know. it can happen to anyone. It can happen. It can happen to anyone. It can happen at any time. I think one of the things, because TC's injury was so clearly severe, it almost in a way made things simpler for us because we knew that we were about to enter the world of the disabled. Um, And I know for others whose injuries were maybe uh, more nuanced or just not as easy to diagnose, they go through years of not understanding uh, why life is suddenly so difficult and why things are not coming easily anymore. So, yeah, in that sense, it was a very clear awakening um, to a new life. So what, so, you know, the doctors gave you all these prognosis of what potentially could be when he comes out of his, um, when he comes, uh, he was in a coma, correct? He was in a coma. Yeah. Yeah. So they really didn't know. And so what, you know, give us a glimpse into what your life was like when he was finally released from the hospital. Yeah, so TC spent about three and a half months in the hospital, um, you know, first in the ICU and then in a step-down unit and then um, in an inpatient rehab hospital, which was uh, located across the street, actually. And by the time he came home, um, you know, a lot of what doctors had said had turned out to be absolutely true. Um, His language was severely impaired. He couldn't form legible or intelligible speech. Um, He couldn't say my name. Um, He couldn't say his own name. He couldn't say his birthday. Um, He was in a wheelchair. Um, So a lot of those things were true. And yet at the same time, he had made so much progress from that first day that it was kind of incredible. So you just learn to adjust your expectations every moment of this, right? Because the, the, the progress can feel slow. And then you look even at the span of what's happened in a week or certainly a month and it's, and it's huge. But I do remember taking him home that day um, from the rehab hospital and learning how to collapse the wheelchair and put it in the car and then getting our two-year-old son in the car and just thinking, what now? Like, how do I do this? Um, You know, at that point we were both now unemployed. I was an elementary school teacher when this happened. um, And this happened the weekend before school started. So I had had to tell my employer I wasn't coming back. TC's employer, um, definitely knew that he was he was not going to be coming back so it was going to be the three of us my son and my husband and I together day in and day out at that point and I was scared to death I felt completely ill-equipped for this job I you know I I just couldn't even imagine how we were going to spend our days and and when you left the hospital did the doctors give you any further agenda of what you should do. I mean, I hear this a lot from people who are sent home. They've been in the hospital, then been in rehab, and then they're like, okay, you're good. Bye. (laughs) And they're not really given any more, you know, guidance. Yeah. It's so interesting. Their definition of good is based on their baseline, (laughs) which was at near death. Right. And our baseline as, as, the people who loved these survivors is knowing them in their lives before and thinking we're pretty far from, from where we were. And in fact, in our, in our case, it was unlikely that we were ever going to get back there. Um, so no, I didn't get much information. I mean, we had wonderful doctors and nurses, but there wasn't a, like a transition team. You know, I'm thinking like when we 
transition from one president to another. There's a transition team that makes sure that goes smoothly. There was no transition team. I was my own transition team. And it was a really fortunate thing that I was an elementary school teacher. Um, Before then, I was a a therapist, a movement therapist for kids who were nonverbal on the autism spectrum. So I had this very clear sense from the get-go that I needed to be the person to drive this recovery further. Um, you know, we, we knew we were going to be in speech therapy and occupational therapy and physical therapy for some time, but I knew that even with those services, there was so much more work that needed to happen. And so it, it became clear to me that, you know, my purpose was going to be to design that recovery for us at home, using all the skills I knew as a teacher um, and trying to just maximize that time we had. The only clear thing I remember was was doctors saying that like most of the recovery for, from brain injury happens in the first year and that timeline just kind of sent me in a tailspin it, it felt like oh my gosh I, we have so much work to do and we don't have any time to do it um, and of course as I've seen over the course of this now almost seven year journey that's not true a yeah. lot does happen in the first year and things also happen in the second year and the third year and the fourth year and so on um, but that timeline definitely got me going it kept me motivated yeah I think that's a really important point we need to address um, mm-hmm. I was told you know we need to give it more time we need to give it more time but then at the year I was told well this might just be the best you're going to be and you know we've learned we've I've learned so much since then about neuroplasticity and like that's absolutely yeah. not true and everybody's recovery is different there's there's no specific timeline you know I've oh, seen absolutely. people with very severe injuries make great recoveries in a year and people with more minor injuries like mine take two three years or longer so you know there's just no magic formula and, yeah and and I and I understand why doctors avoid being overly prescriptive right because of that right. and then as, <laughs> as, as a person who's a caregiver who also speaks a lot to this community I, I try to avoid those promises also because who knows it's just so uncertain the only thing I can say is to keep hope because because it it matters. It matters that you can envision something more than where you are now, or you can envision, you know, getting these certain skills back. Because I do think that neuroplasticity um, is connected to how we envision the future. That we we create yeah. neuro pathways as we imagine a different way forward. And I know that from myself as a caregiver, actually, because. For me at first, I thought this was it. Our lives were over. And um, TC was 29 when this happened. I had just celebrated my 30th birthday. We were very young. Um, And I thought, we only have dark days ahead of us. And when I started to rethink that, to, to ask myself whether that necessarily had to be true, whether actually we could you know, make lemonade out of lemons here and there might be some way to move forward and to find joy again. I started creating new circuits in my brain that kept me motivated. And, you know, and I really think that's the reason we are doing as well as we are now is because we never lost hope. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hearing your keynote, if I remember right, it wasn't until about Mm -hmm. two and a half years when he made a really significant improvement? 
Am I remembering that correctly? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're remembering. Yeah. So he went back to work two and a half years Ah, later. Back to work. Which in itself was enormous because doctors had made it clear that he was never going to go back to work. I mean, he couldn't read, he couldn't write. Um, And prior to this, he was um, an energy, a solar energy analyst for a consulting firm. So he did a lot of math. He did a lot of public speaking, you know, these really kind of uh, sophisticated skills that um, he was unlikely to regain. So that in itself was just an incredible accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure no doubt that had to do, I mean, yeah, he was going to OT and PT and, but you were at home working with him too yeah. every single day. And I know that yeah. that has made the, a huge difference. Yeah, I think it was, um, it was two parts. So it was, it was me making some decisions about how we were going to spend our days. So we, you know, we started something called brain school at home and we were working on really foundational skills at first, just relearning the letters of the alphabet and the letter sounds. We were spending every minute in the car that we had doing some sort of therapeutic activity, whether it was listening to audiobooks while TC read a book so he could get information in more than one way or um, singing songs together with our son. Um, we made every moment so intentional together. And then after a year, we were fortunate to find a program in Nova Scotia that offered some intensive speech therapy. Um, and we were accepted into that program and participated in two sessions of that. TC learned so much during that experience, he was able to come home and design his day for himself um, to mimic all of the therapeutic activities he had done there in Nova Scotia. So then he really took the reins and he really made it possible for himself to go back to work. So he, you know, he went slowly. He, and and that was a long process of just figuring out um, how to reenter the workforce. That was challenging, but it had to start with just even being able to read the newspaper and summarize a paragraph of what he'd read. So there were so many skills to put back in place first Um, two and a half years seems like a long time to many people, I'm sure. But, you know, when I think about what this could have been, two and a half years is actually a relatively quick amount of time for him to be able to return to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. It was two and a half years for me until I even got to a doctor that was able to help me. So, I mean, I know what that timeline feels like. It feels like forever when you're in it. It feels like you're kind of washing it, walking in marshmallows. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and I know at the beginning when people were saying things like one year or two years, and I'm thinking, I'm not going to survive one year or two years of this, you know, (laughs) that feels so far away. And then you get there and you're like, okay, (laughs) we did it. And it's not over, but we we did it. And I think one thing that I just learned as a person in this experience as a human was like, I needed to trust myself a little bit more. You know, there were so many moments where I thought, I can't do this. I can't be this caregiver. I, uh, this marriage is too hard. And then I would look back on all the days that I had survived and I would have to remind myself, you did that. You got through that day. Look at that. Yeah. Look at your track list. Like you, you've done pretty well and you're, you're going to continue to be that same person. So trust that you have the inner resources that it takes to go forward in this experience. Yeah. You know, and I think you just kind of really hit on something, you know, I, I, 
having a spouse's perspective on here is, is mm. so important. I, I feel like it's a very under, 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 underrepresented um, mm. demographic. And, you know, we hear a lot about caregivers, but, you know, it's not always mm-hmm. a spouse. And, mm. you know, like you said, it, you had your moments where you didn't think you could do it. You didn't think you were going to make it. You didn't think your marriage would survive. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I hear in different groups the frustration from, from um, uh, spouses, how their husband's no longer the same person. He's different. Mm-hmm. He's mean. He's forgetful. He does this. He does that. And I just mm-hmm. want to scream through my computer, you know, he has a brain injury, right? Um, I but, know. But I get it. Like, it is. It's your whole world. It's not just the person who has the brain injury. It's it's the spouse. It's the family. It's the kids. It's the parents. Everybody's lives are affected. Yeah. And, you, and know, you know, I think what you just said is why there's so much guilt involved in this for caregivers. Because yeah. you feel like because the other person is suffering in a way you can't even imagine, how dare you <laughs> complain about the difficulties in your life. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. You know, and and a lot of caregivers are silent for that reason because they worry about being perceived as ungrateful or um, disloyal or all of these things. When in reality, we're just all human beings and we, we can't stop wanting what we want. And if we've been in a marriage or a partnership that was really Supporting and symbiotic in terms of giving and receiving, and, and we're no longer the recipients mm-hmm. anymore of any of those gifts. It's hard to just turn it off. You know, there's just a grief over that relationship that it's really hard to name. And and I also think I see often where okay, so you brought your husband home, and you mm-hmm. maybe had some outside help for a while, like friends and families mm-hmm. and neighbors might've brought you meals and cookies and helped mm-hmm. with things. But then at a certain point that all tends to drift away and mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and every situation is different, but you know, I think it's so important for those of us to ask for help too. Um, I know it can be really, really hard to ask for help. You don't want people to know you're struggling, um, but it's so yeah. critical for your mental health, right? Um, so critical. Being yeah. a 24-7 caregiver. Like, yeah, and, and I think I'm like a reformed <laughs> help helper person because uh, I don't know how to name it, but I, I mean, I, I took a lot of pride in being self-sufficient and I really believed there was some level of weakness in demonstrating um, the need for help. And what I've come to see is that some point in your life, you will be on the flip side. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how well prepared you are for life. You will be on the receiving end of help and be gracious and let just be merciful to yourself because, because there's no avoiding it. And that is how it is supposed to be. We are not supposed to be the ones always giving. It is okay to need help and to ask for it is very brave. It's very courageous. So you and TC sense, you know, like after he went back to work and had this amazing recovery, and as you said, you know, he's continued to improve over the past seven years. I assume you guys have had conversations. Like, does he, does he remember the struggle? Like, does he remember that Mm -hmm. first year, two years? Like, you know, 
do you have conversations about it and like how he felt situation? Yeah, for sure. You know, it's really interesting because um, in that sense, writing a book about this experience has been really helpful for both of us because we were both recovering on very, yeah, we're recovering on different timelines. You know, he missed, you know, at least the first six months and then was still in a fog for many months after And so by the point that he was just starting to ask questions about, like, what happened to me? How did I sustain this injury? I'm a year into the future thinking, like, I've got to go back to work at some point. We have to afford how to live. And um, so we were very much on different timelines. As he read the book, he had such a deep appreciation for what it was like to be on my side. And, And we both describe it as being in a sort of mental prison for him, you know, not to be able to communicate what he knows, right. what he's thinking. I can't, I, I can't even imagine how challenging that was and still continues to be for him um, because he will always have aphasia. Um, and then for me being in this kind of prison of, I feel like the only grown up in this house. Um, I have a two year old <laughs> who can't speak. I have a husband who can't speak. I am in charge of them all. I need a babysitter for them both. Um, if this all falls apart, it's on me. This is my responsibility. Uh, that felt like a different kind of isolation. So it was very isolating for both of us, which made the process of, of you know, beginning a new relationship together extremely difficult. I think in my mind, I thought the first year of this, just the physical recovery was going to be the most difficult part. And it was difficult. But the second year where we really started to inventory all we had lost in our relationship um, and our marriage, that was extremely challenging because we really did have to start over. We were two brand new people. Um, And so a a lot of the mental work of surviving brain injury has been that emotional recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask, is he, you know, so as he's recovering, you're hoping that he's going to be, you're going to see the same TC Mm -hmm. and I assume that he's not exactly the same TC. He's like TC.20 or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. That's what we call him. That's really what we call him. And he calls himself that. Um, Yes. And you know, as a survivor that some of the changes are so nuanced, they're so subtle. It's just hard to put words around even. Um, And it certainly as I've been on a book tour. That is, the number one question I'm getting is like how in what ways is he different and and for me I think the thing that's the same is his tenacity um you know he was a real self-starter he was the first person in his family to go to college he he was really really um focused on building a foundation for his life when this happened because he had lived with a lot of insecurity as a kid um and so that tenacity showed up in just a new way when he was injured. So now it wasn't so much tenacity with like, go get the next job or the next promotion. Now it was, I'm going to put one foot in front of the other and I'm going to learn how to walk again. Um, so that tenacity was still there. And that's, you know, just a, a beautiful trait of his that he has been fortunate enough to retain. Um, and then the changes are, are subtle. You know, I, I think you, you're in a relationship for a while. You can predict how people are going to react to something or, you know, news or whatever. And he's unpredictable now. I, I'm not always certain <laughs> how he's going to interpret something. Um, right. He used to be, yeah, he's, he's softer in a way. He, he sees the violence in the world in a much clearer mm. way and knows that he has to put boundaries around himself to protect himself 
from that re-traumatizing experience of just living yeah. in this world right now. So there are certain TV shows and news programs and, and that he won't watch, and, and that's out of respect for himself and, and very clear boundaries that he set. Um, he's very focused on being a great dad, and he has made that his primary mission. Um, we were been fortunate to, to have a new addition to our family in the past few years. Our daughter was born two, two and a half years ago. And so I see him, you know, in, in all of his grit now. He's just trying to learn how to, to father a <laughs> two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. That's, that's a new challenge. But so, yes, similar in some ways, and, of course, very, very different, and, and life feels very different than it used to, and, it, and, it, and part of that is just the perspective that we have now about how precious this is and um, how important um, each of our days are and our decisions about how to spend them. So there's a sense of gratitude we have now that I don't think we had before. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, as far as your extended family you know, how, mm-hmm. how have they um, handled all of this? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think I couldn't appreciate for a long time that this was traumatic for everyone in a different way. Right. You alluded to mm-hmm. that earlier. Yeah. And I think I felt like, no, no, this is just traumatic for TC and I and our son and just that immediate uh, nuclear family. And absolutely not. I mean, I was really, I was really not paying attention to how difficult this was for everyone we are so fortunate to have family and friends who have really stayed by our side on this journey um, and have gone through some, some very real ups and downs with us. I, I think I've seen, I've seen this injury tear families apart. Um, and in our case, um, we've gone through moments of that and ultimately we're stronger than we were before. Um, and that's just required a lot of forgiveness for, for each yeah. other, for ourselves. And just a real willingness to look into the future and and leave the past where it is. I think that's such an important lesson, the forgiveness. Like, I'm sure Mm -hmm. in the heat of the moment, people have said things and, you know, like, you know, especially that first year, like they, they say things and they just they're being ignorant or they're just. You know, they don't know, they don't know what to say. So they say something inappropriate. Right. And yeah, having that ability to just let it go and get over it and, and just continue to all love each other. It's such an important lesson. It's so hard to know the right thing to say. And I will say as someone who gets a lot of messages every day from survivors and caregivers, as you do, I still don't even have the right words for people going through the exact same thing, right? Because we want to fix it. Mm -hmm. We just want to fix it. We just, no one would wish this on their worst enemy. And we just want to be able to say the thing that's just right. And, and I think what we just need to do is listen and acknowledge that this is, this is painful in such a uniquely painful way um, and, and that that pain is valid. Do you have any advice for someone listening who is, you know, in those early stages with a spouse? Mm-hmm. What would be your advice for them? I think you hear the advice when you're ready to hear it. So I'll offer this with the understanding that it may not, it may not be received until the right time. Um, This is an opportunity to change yourself too. I think when, when your spouse has an injury of this magnitude, you, you really don't have a choice but to change yourself. And so at some point I decided I want to be a better version of myself. I actually wanted to be a version that looked a little bit 
more like my husband that I that I had lost um, because he was a, a tremendous man who taught me a lot. And some of his qualities, his curiosity, his ambition, those were traits I wanted to take on myself. So, you know, this is an opportunity to transform yourself and to live the life that you that you want to live so that you can say you spent your days, you know, in the very best way possible and that you did the things that you loved and that passionate um, about things that mattered. I, yeah. And I think, you know, you said that they'll, they'll, they're ready to hear the advice when they're ready. And, you know, that's such an important point because you, you kind of do go through stages of grief almost um, both yeah. the survivor and the family. Um, you go through your own separate stages of grief. And I know for me that first year I was so in a fog and nobody was giving me answers and I was frustrated. And then finally one day I woke up and I was like, you know what, if this is the best it is, then I just got to make the most of it. And that's right. when the healing started. Right. <laughs> you know, right. imagine that's that. <laughs> to just be, I know. Oh my goodness. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is that permission to just accept life as it is. Um, we cannot compare ourselves to what we were. Um, This is truly, it's a truly a new life. And that grief process, that period of grieving, I mean, I think it's probably indefinite. I think you're, you're always grieving to some extent forever and always, but um, it has to be acknowledged that this, that there has been a real loss. Um, And that is one of the kindest things that friends and family can do for, for people going through this is to just offer them um, the, the grace of grief and say, I, I see that this is a loss and I acknowledge your loss. Yeah. Well, Abby, this has been such a pleasure. I could talk to you all day. I am so Thank happy you. for you and your book. Again, your book is called love you hard. And I do have the link in the show notes. It's available on Amazon and most bookstores. Um, so I wish you the very best. It's such an important book. I hope everybody picks up a copy to read it because it's just a beautiful Aww. book. So thank, thank you, you so, so much, Jamie. This was here. an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. And thank you for all that you're doing for the community. It's much appreciated. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode with Abby Maslin. And you can also catch any uh, past episodes at facesoftbi.com and click on the podcast series tab. And again, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zellmer. And just another big thank you to Midwest Functional Neurology Center, mnfunctionalneurology.com, the concussion doctors you can trust in the Midwest. So thank you all for listening. Thank you for being a part of my journey. And I will see you all again next time.